0: Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Luann Brizendine. She completed her degree in neurobiology at UC Berkeley, graduated from Yale School of Medicine, and did her internship and residency at Harvard Medical School. And she helped found the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic at UCSF. Today, we dove deep into her new book called The Upgrade. We talked about terminology and how this is largely a byproduct of the patriarchy. She has coined some new terms for perimenopause and menopause, namely the transition and the upgrade. We spoke at length about how our hormones impact behavior, the hormonal fluctuations that happen at middle age involving our sex hormones. And the impact on behavior the role of estrogen the impact of caffeine and alcohol on brain health as well as cognitive health we spoke at great length about the women's health initiative and how this study has largely been wrongly interpreted and has impacted well women care over the last 20 years as well as influencing a whole generation of clinicians to be fearful of utilizing hormone replacement therapy. We discussed the differences between synthetic and bioidentical hormones. We spoke at great length about some of the side effects that can happen in middle age if you are not on hormone replacement therapy, specifically bone health and your neuro- neurologic impact. Because Dr. Brizendine is actually also a neuropsychiatrist, we spoke about medications that can be utilized to help with Bridging symptoms that women experience in the perimenopause into menopause transition, including microdosing of antidepressants and anti-anxiety and antipsychotic medications. I hope you will love this discussion. I was so impressed by Dr. Brizendine's commitment to excellence for women, her advocacy, and her continued support of women not settling for unacceptable behavior and treatment. <music> Welcome, Dr. Brizendine. It's so nice to be connected with you. I have so thoroughly enjoyed your most recent book and have really been looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, Cynthia. I just really appreciate the opportunity to get to speak to you and also to your audience and see if we can give them a few tidbits as we go along that will, you know, really improve their life and their well-being.
0: So I love your background. You have a background in neurobiology, then you went to medical school. Did you always know that you wanted to be in a position where you would help serve women? Because one of the things about your background that I found seems to be pretty clear is that you are a huge women's advocate and you want women to really understand their own unique physiology and how that impacts our mood and how we perceive the world.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I like the. I always like the phrase "biology is destiny" unless you know what it's doing to you. And that that phrase kind of comes out of all of my training. You know, I trained in neurobiology as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley before I went to uh, Yale Medical School, and that's where you know I, I think at Berkeley because you know our our body our our bodies ourselves came out in the era when I was there. You know, the first the first issues of Ms. Magazine. I was you know certainly very involved in the. You know, in all of the the um, movement for women taking charge of their own bodies and taking charge of their own health, and um, you know, those are the days when you were not even allowed to have a credit card uh, until 1971 or two, if you were a woman without your husband's signature on it. You know, it was, it was a really, we, we forget. I mean, and of course, you know, abortion was illegal, you know, so there was, there was a really, um, that's Our Bodies, Ourselves. So I kind of think of this book, The Upgrade I just came out with, I kind of think of it as um, a new version of Our Bodies, Ourselves for women in the second half of life, you know, from a like 40, 40 plus, just when you think, just when you think it's over, it's not over. It's just, it's like, it's like beginning again anew with your true self right in the center of your honesty and your authenticity of who you really are and you're able to let go of some of the um you know the people pleasing all of the things we do in our fertility years a fertility dance uh I, I like to call it you know it's not it's not a bad thing it's just that it's it causes us hormones remember a hormone's purpose is to cause a behavior so the hormone's purpose is to cause a behavior the up and down of the hormones in the menstrual cycle and we can do a little deep dive on that but that They're pushing you to behave in a flirtatious come hither way and to do what mother nature's bidding Is mother nature wants you at that age to go out and find the best sperm. So going out and finding the best sperm is what you're supposed to do, especially three or four days before ovulation every month. And your hormones push you to do that. You look, we sway our hips more. We talk in a higher voice. We actually, um, we actually speak more. We put on a little bit more makeup. We dress sexier. I mean, all the studies show this. We do it unconsciously. It's not on purpose. And so the hormones are driving us under the hood in ways we don't even know. So then the cool thing is, is that when you get to what I call the transition and the upgrade, that is the, that you're transitioning from the developmental stage of life, which is called the fertility stage, you're into a developmental stage of life that heretofore has never had a name to it. In the year 1900, the average age of death for a woman was age 49. So she didn't even get to the menopause. I mean, you know, so this is a new phenomenon in, in completely. So this developmental stage has not been um, even given a name. So I, I thought the upgrade was a, an apropos name for the for women going into the second half of life where you really have the chance to, uh, to choose more of your, your direction Um, than you did before when the fertility hormones were pushing you in a certain direction.
0: Well, I think it's such a beautiful reframe. And for listeners, uh, perimenopause is the transition and menopause is the upgrade. And I love the reframing because terminology and words matter. And I love in the book that you mentioned fossil words created by men and pharma. So let's just be very clear that this terminology was not created by women. It was created uh, largely probably by male physicians uh, and the pharmaceutical industry to try to create a, you know, a, a time in a woman's life. But I think for many, if not all women, when I connect with them on social media or women that I work with one on one, the prevailing thought processes that uh, middle age is when all these things end, we lose our looks, you know, our our body composition changes. We suddenly start having trouble sleeping. And so much of of your book that I took away from it is we need to celebrate this transitional time in our lives. We need to not fear it. Uh, One thing that I think is really interesting, and I've started mentioning this more frequently, my poor husband hears me talk about this all the time, but how many women in middle age are finally freed from the desire to be a people pleaser? I am a card-carrying former people pleaser. And so as we lose, exactly, as we lose estrogen, it starts impacting our behavior, not in negative ways. And I, I think back to when I was a new nurse practitioner, I was in my 20s. I, my whole background's in cardiology. I was very much a people pleaser. That's why I did really well with these very adrenaline junkie fueled, predominantly male physicians. I got along really well with them because that people pleasing came out and it was a really nice symbiotic relationship. And I look at it now and I'm like, I would never do well in that environment now, (laughs) ever. Um, You
1: know, it's not, as you speak about it, and those of us who've been in the medical world understand it, like you're saying that people pleasing thing that, you know, that the the attractive 20 something year old assistant to the, to the kind of, to the male aggressive cardiologist, you know, um, in those days, I mean, of course, there's lots of women now in cardiology, but in those days, And it's still, still very, very predominant. You know, I have an uncle who's still practicing medicine in his early 80s. And he practices on Friday nights and Saturdays. And I think that the reason he still likes to do it is he likes to go hang out with all the young nurses. So let's just be clear. Let's let's let's, let's tell our secret, <laughs> Cynthia. Okay, the secret. If people could look in behind the scenes in the in the medical world, what goes on in this kind of flirtatious thing that goes on between the male physicians and the female, either nurses or nurse practitioners or for our staff, you know? And um, so, young, attractive females and usually older, kind of alpha male doctors is that's the dynamic. And so, it's not only people pleasing that goes on. For sure, it's people pleasing, but it's also flirtatious people pleasing to to the males in the in an authority position over us.
0: And it's really interesting. So you've kind of alluded to these how hormones help guide behavior. Let's talk a little bit about you know women that are still in their peak fertile years. How these hormones, this careful orchestration, influences behaviors that you've kind of alluded to. And how that starts to shift as we are heading into the beginning stages of perimenopause. And for a lot of women, they're not even aware it's happening, late 30s, early 40s. And all of a sudden, maybe they're starting to see some changes and disruption in their sleep. Maybe they're experiencing more anxiety. Maybe they're getting changes in their menstrual cycle. I think that that transit that actually describing some of the physiology that goes on would be super helpful because we don't realize until we start having a problem, we kind of take our hormones for granted.
1: Yeah, our hormones are just doing what they're doing. So I think that, so that stage, I call it in the book, okay, I talk about the transition stage one, transition stage two, transition stage three, and, you know, fourth stage of transition before you go into the upgrade stage one, upgrade stage two, and upgrade stage three. So that's just, for all of you listeners, that's just kind of the arc, the arc that we go through. So let's attach some ages and a few symptoms to those. So first, the perimenopause slash transition stage one, and start anywhere between like it's kind of in the in the window of like the kind of it's the pre it's kind of the pre transition stage thirty eight to forty two is kind of where I plop it down because it's it's also like you say Cynthia it's not necessarily uh, something that we we pay much attention to it just seems like maybe it's kind of just a little bit a little bit more like um, difficulty cooling down after a workup out. You know, you like, you used to just like not even think about cooling down, but you just cool down. And then all of a sudden you're feeling like, gosh, you know, 15 minutes later, why am I so hot? You know? And so that's basically the beginning of what we call the thermostat. Now, there's almost like there's a thermostat in your brain. It's like you go to your thermostat in your house and you, you know, you're gonna you're gonna it's like in a group of people of 10 people and in a room, you change the temperature up 10 degrees. Everybody's gonna be hot, taking off layers with that 10 degree change. However, if you're a woman that's starting in your transition and as a transition goes more, the estrogen changes in your brain actually narrow that window of temperature receptivity down to maybe one or two degrees change and you in the room of 10 other people who are not in the transition or perimenopause you are you are hot you're taking off layers and everybody else is going what's the problem you're saying open the windows you know so that gets more and more at each stage of transition and sometimes the you know, throwing the covers off at night is the beginning of that. And you're, you don't want your partner like wrapping his arms all around you because you feel like it's just too hot. So you're pushing him away. And, and that becomes more and more with each like stage two of the transition stage, stage three. Um, those, those are the very typical kind of, I call them, you know, the biological indications of the hormone piece. Now the anxiety, depression, irritability piece of that also is attached to the stages of the transition Um, it's, it's like a little bit like, um, having PMS pop up, not just at the last two days before you start bleeding of your cycle, but it can, it can pop up in little windows, you know, throughout the month. And that kind of can also tell you that usually that starts to happen in the transition stage two, like about age 42 to 45, 46, that's really when we can really start to notice, some of those, and I described this all in the book. And it's nice to be able to pinpoint where you where you are in the transition. I think it's very helpful. You know, the the, the measurements of your hormones don't really tell you much. Uh, you can go to the doctor. You can get them measured if you want, but remember, it's just like they change every hour on the hour. So it's just like it's like kind of like throwing a dart at a dartboard. It's like just luck if you get something back um, that will tell you something about where you are in that transition. Um, I know some people are now measuring AMH, but that's a, that's a new, you know, that, that's a hormone that can maybe tell you how far you are from the from the menopause. So that may be worth doing, although it's only about fifty percent correct. So don't confuse yourself with that. The best thing to do is what your own symptoms are, right?
0: And it's interesting because it's as unique as we are. And I can't tell you how many friends of mine blissfully made it through their forties, no problems. Hit fifty like a wall. How many women start struggling in their late thirties? I think of the transition or perimenopause as a whole as a barometer of how well we're taking care of ourselves. Meaning if we are still insulin sensitive, we're exercising, we're getting enough sleep, that transition will probably be less fraught with concerns than the average woman that is probably not, we become less insulin sensitive as we're having these fluctuating amounts of estrogen and estradiol. But the women that I see struggling the most are the people who Eat and drink alcohol like they did when they were 20, don't really exercise, don't manage their stress, don't prioritize sleep. And so I always think of it as a barometer. Like typically, the way women are feeling in their 40s is largely, largely impacted by the way that they're living their lifestyles.
1: Yes. Okay. So let's get down some brass tacks here, Cynthia. Okay. So you can turn, people can turn to page 86, which is called Luann's Sleep Program. And this is, it also, this, so, Think of this stage of life, your forty to fifty year old life, and something. The way you can visualize it, let's think of about a little stool with three legs on the stool. We need all three legs to basically make it stable, right, so that you can like sit on. So this is this is your life between forty and fifty. The one of the legs of the stool is sleep. One of the legs of the stool is like exercise and muscles, and the other leg of the stool is your diet. So, or other substances that you put in your body, or don't put in your body. Okay. <laughs> so, do you want? to, Should we do a deep dive in on those? Th- those three, just kind
0: of. I would do love do for those. you. To I know do there's that. a
1: lot in the book about it, so you can find it. Find more of the details about. It. But it's really important because let's think of the sleep first. Because as your hormones, estrogen, goes down and fluctuates. Remember, sometimes it can be really low, and sometimes it it can go from a level of just, just to give you some numbers, it can go from a level of 10 or 20 up to a level of 400. Right in the middle of the cycle, willy nilly. I mean, it's just all over the map because as the ovaries are starting to retire, they're spurting out things now and then, and then they're basically going back to sleep. And there's this all we can all kinds of biology behind that, but that's based, that's the bottom line. So, but sleep, okay, sleep. When you're awake, your brain cells are going chat, chat, chat to each other all day long, problem solving, whatever, and they're throwing out proteins, look, they're throwing garbage. That's are just throwing trash all over the place in your brain. It's just like really trash, trashy stuff all over your brain. And so at night, when you sleep, those little neurons, they shrink back from each other, leaving a little space in between for the brain to actually hose out all the trash. So, you know, you know, in Paris, they had those little cleaners that go around and hose everything off at night or the person in the morning, they wake you up. You know, there's you got to let the brain get hosed out at night of the trash to start the new day or you're not going to be fresh the next day. So this is really, this is, listen, ladies, this, if there's nothing more important than this cornerstone, then this leg of the stool is really important. You've got to get that right. And so I'm going to tell you some things that are not so pleasant now for all of us that in our twenties and thirties, we maybe used to do whatever we did. We would have like, you know, three, double espressos in the morning and we would drink whatever we wanted at night, etc. And we just like, you know, we slept like a baby and it was not a problem. Okay. There's still some women who go through their forties like that, but not very many because you start having all the glitches and you don't want to interrupt your sleep. So if you drink a cup of coffee, the, any caffeine, even, a, you know, a, a lot of dark chocolate or a lot of like, even energy drinks, whatever it is, read the labels. Cause boy, you, you, you'll be surprised at what caffeine is in. So Anyway, read those labels. it will have caffeine in a lot of things. So caffeine at noon will still be in your in your bloodstream and brain at midnight. Not a lot of it, but enough of it that because of the hormone fluctuations, you will be stimulated to not be able to fall asleep. So ladies, if you're having trouble falling asleep, the falling asleep, we have a technical name, is called initial insomnia, initial insomnia. So falling asleep, if that's where you're having your trouble, Think caffeine, just think caffeine and go at it. I mean, you ladies, you, you know how to make a, you know, you know how to make a life plan. You know how to figure out like, okay, for the next two weeks, I'm going to try, I'm going to test drive this for myself to see how that's working for me. I am going to reduce just going straight to decaf or whatever it is by 11 o'clock or noon and see how my sleep changes. Um, I have a lot of women in the category of probably about 15% of women, 20% of women that have so much difficulty at this time with sleep, that's also making them depressed and moody and irritable and can't fo- brain fog, all this, that we have to go at it in a serious way. So, if you're in that 20% of women, um, we're going to pull you all the way down to being abstinent, caffeine abstinent. And so, that you may be in that category and you can do it yourself. You don't have to go to a fancy doctor like me to find that out. That's just like, the that's why I wrote the book. It's like anybody who reads this book, it doesn't have to go to a fancy hormone doctor. They got to figure it all out right there for yourselves. You're, you're all smart women who can do this. So that's okay. That's that pillar. That's that little pillar. Does that make sense to you, Cynthia?
0: Absolutely. And I think it's so important because I talk so much about how sleep is so foundational to our health the role of the glymphatic system, which is this waste and recycling process that goes on at night, and how many people don't understand that their lifestyle choices, whether it's caffeine or alcohol or an inflammatory diet can adversely impact their sleep quality. Again, we still think of ourselves as being 20, but we can't eat and behave like we did when we were 20. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some circumstances, up to a 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible.
1: Protect your brain cells, ladies. That's that's the name. Actually, that's that's basically the subtitle of the book, how the female brain, you know, blah, blah, blah. The female brain in the second half of life is what this book's all about and how to protect your brain at this stage of life and have it be, you know, your best. And then also preventing dementia, preventing brain fog, preventing all this other stuff, preventing depression and anxiety. So there's lots of tips all through the book for preventing those kinds of things and 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 living your best life.
0: Absolutely. And what is your thought process or what is your what are your discussions like with your patients around alcohol because i i see so many of my own patients that suddenly start not tolerating alcohol even small amounts of alcohol in their transitional and upgraded years. And so I've been asking more and more clinicians when they come on, Dr. Lara Bryden, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, uh, this year in particular, asking their opinions of the use of alcohol. And and there's been a a pretty unified front. And I would imagine that your prevailing philosophies are probably very similar.
1: Okay, drum roll. We did the caffeine, right? Okay. (laughs) Here's a drum roll for alcohol. So if you are having trouble staying asleep, at night. Like you'll go to sleep for a couple of hours and then you'll wake up and not be able to get back to sleep. That is typical of women who have a problem with the alcohol. That is that can kind of be your barometer. Um, and uh so so let's just focus on on that group because what I basically tell women is if you're gonna have like a glass of wine at dinner, do it by 6, 6:30 p.m. because you want your system to have metabolized it by time you're going to bed at whatever, 10 through 11. I know around our house since pandemic, it's like pushed almost to midnight every night. But, you know, if you're living in a house with teenagers, that's what they're, the, you don't never get to see them unless you're up at midnight. But at any rate, you got to get the alcohol, like it's down to a minimum. Um, and for women in that 20% group that's having trouble with their sleep, trouble with their mood, trouble with um irritability all kinds of things i say like okay let's go let's try to aim also for abstinence on that at least give it a test drive for two weeks and see how you get some yeah you know, what improvement you get individuals it's a very individual thing um alcohol is such a part of our i mean our dining out culture etc cetera, etc cetera. um basically the other thing is it's like okay let's talk about Alcohol, I mean, if I had a prescription for all of you ladies, I would take you off of alcohol and off of caffeine for starting at this stage of life because your brain really is not going to be able to be at its healthiest with those substances in your body. And as, as well as when we start talking about HRT a little bit, it's very clear that HRT plus alcohol increases your risk of cancer. increases your risk of all kinds of things. It increases your risk of heart problems, increases your risk of breast cancer, increases your risk. Uh, So um, I, um, if I were really, if all of you ladies were my sisters, I would really want to give you the best possible formula, which would be give yourself, uh, give yourself a gift of getting off the alcohol and the caffeine.
0: I think that's really very wise. And, you know, the direction the conversation I was hoping it would go in would be to talk a bit about the Women's Health Initiative. Uh, women that are familiar with this podcast know that I I talk about this quite a lot. I was finishing up my nurse practitioner program when the WHI uh, research came out. It changed the trajectory of recommendations for patients. It certainly changed the trajectory of my mother's generation, all of her siblings. And, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Peter Attia, and he was saying that he thinks it's probably the most detrimental uh, study that has been wrongfully interpreted and has had such a profound impact on generations of clinicians, as well as women and their loved ones. So I would love to talk about the Women's Health Initiative vis-a-vis brain health, And, you know, what is your prevailing philosophy that's kind of come out of that? Because I I know for myself, I was safely in cardiology. I didn't have to deal with it. It was generally, I would turf it back to the GYNs and to primary care. But certainly now that I am a middle-aged woman myself, I take uh, hormone therapy very seriously. And I, I think there's still a lot of clinicians, a lot of patients who are terrified of the concept of utilizing hormone therapies when it's completely appropriate to do so.
1: Yes. A tragedy. The 2002, this is the 20th anniversary, Cynthia, 2002, the 20th anniversary of the WHI. And I talk a little bit about this in my introduction, as you probably remember, probably that <laughs> I can see that you and I are birds of a feather. We're like thinking along the same line. So. And also just just to give you the, the we'll, we'll talk about, the disasters that it caused because it basically was wrongly interpreted. The average age woman was 63, 64. She was a smoker, also a drinker, and also the the um there had more women with breast cancer genes in the in the category of hormone. It was it was it really it was a mess. And it was taken very seriously and within days, you know, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, who was a woman at the time, said she took herself and her sisters off of all hormones I'm like with 35% of women were taking it at the time and it dropped within a few years down to like 5 to 8%. So it so all of those women for all of these years that haven't had it now we're looking what happens to you if you don't have it. So and the other the other big problem for women out there another reason I wrote the book is because I'm not an OBGYN and I trained in psychiatry and neurology. And for all of my career, remember, I started the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic in 1994. So this was way before the WHI came out. So I practiced in my clinic for almost a decade before the effects really hit of that. And I was helping women with their anxiety and depression during the perimenopause and menopause with adding adding estrogen to those women who had depression along with their antidepressants and getting really great results. And then, of course, so... but. and all my OBGYN friends in my, in my university at that time, they had all trained in giving HRT to women and stuff, but they would always say, well, they, they were the OBGYNs. They did below the waist for hormones and Luann did above the neck. So they would send their patients across the street to my clinic, to Luann's clinic above the neck. If they were having problems with sleep or anxiety or depression, or, you know, all those kinds of things that are considered or brain fog, the brain, the brain parts of the, the transition and the upgrade. So, um, and we were working hand in hand together really well. And then when that hit, they all went to what was the mantra for the OBGYN profession. Nobody gets hormone, no hormones. You cannot get me to write a prescription for HRT. you know. And then what happened is all of those women who would have been the professors for the next generation for 20 years did not teach anything to their new residents and interns about HRT. So what you have now in the country, the reason women are scrambling without being able to find anybody in, in certain communities, you know, you know, all the communities in the country have a few doctors in their community that are very high priced that do the HRT, so, you know, and it's not available to all women, which I feel very badly about. Now, 20% only of OBGYN residents to this day, only 20% of the, of the residency programs give them even one lecture on hormone replacement therapy. They are coming out not having any education on it. So they don't know. They don't think about it. They don't, you know how it is when your professors aren't interested in something or when they say, um, you know, are they just, they've just? they just chirped it. They just say, no, we're not doing that because we don't want to be sued or what, you know, they've gotten, this is 20 years, ladies. And so now we have all of these women that didn't get HRT. What do we have? We have an epidemic of osteoporosis for one thing. All of these women, I'm sure your mother and your mother's friends and your mother's siblings, you know, your aunts probably, they all have osteoporosis now at, at the maximal level because they did not get any HR, they didn't get any estrogen at the transition and the brain fog anxiety, not to mention just like the sleep disruption. So anyway, you can tell me you hit my hobby heart. I was like, this is this is not okay. I we don't want women out there suffering needlessly and they the information now, so of course, if you, for your listeners, if you really want to choose somebody in your community, go onto the NAMS, the NAMS website, the North America Menopause Society website, and choose a practitioner that is a member of NAMS in your community, because they are the ones who are trained in this um, area, and they will help you with your hormone replacement therapy. And the, the it, you know, it's, they're at the head of the game. And then the APA is way behind the game and is still, et cetera. So if you read all of these, you know, so there's, there's really a lot of catch up to do. And the, I think one of the issues, the thing that's pushing it the most is women have more Alzheimer's than men. And the thinking is that the estrogen deficit that we get, be, you know, after age 50, let's say, is really uh, one of the potential preventions of, of dementia and Alzheimer's for women. It's not, so I don't want to say that it is. I want to say that it's being heavily researched and that information may not come out for for definitively for another 20 years. It's a very long, long study and and difficult to look at uh, because of all the other factors. But for sure, I'm just, the reason I focus on the bones is the bones are something we can focus on that we know and that we can, you know, scan. So if you're a woman- in your between forty and fifty, just forty and fifty, and you get a DEXA scan, which is the scan for your bones. You just basically it's a funny thing. just lay down on a little bed, and this little thing just goes zoom over you, and you're done. I mean, it's like a, you know, it's like a thirty second thing, and you get your score, and you find out where you are on the bone score. Now I'm sixty nine, and I have had HRT, but I take the patch. And I've had a talk about all my own. I talk about all my own story in the book, too. So if you want to hear all the, the grisly details of my own story, you can hear that, read that in the book. But I got the started getting the patch at about, I think I was about 52 when I started taking the patch. And I my bug density most recently was about 1.5 standard deviations above a 35 year old woman. That's amazing. So you, know, so, you know, and it's not like I don't do a huge amount of weight bearing. I, I mean, I do some, I try to do, Enough exercise. But so I'm very clear that if you are a woman and you find out in that age when you're in that age group between forty and fifty that your your bone scan shows that you are already a standard deviation or two, which basically means you're you're low on your bone density and you don't have any you don't have a genetic risk for breast cancer or anything like that, you should seriously consider taking hrt for a number of years and 10 10 years is the a number of years that women um, that is considered that women can safely take it without you know having any if, if you're not drinking alcohol you can safely take it up to 10 years and now that that number keeps being pushed further too i mean all of us all, all of people like me that all the doctors in practice at least in san francisco we've got lots of patients in their 80s and even 90s still taking their patch so it's not you know it will continue to be a Uh, you know, it's a moving target. But anyway, so that's that's my little little hobby horse of like the, the WHI, the HRT issue, and really encouraging women to realize that this whole era of the last 20 years came, doctors are giving you information from a flawed study that's 20 years old at this point. And I don't want the next generation of women to end up having harm harm from lack of something that's available. And remember, we're not in the year 1900 when everybody, the women's average age of death was 49. We're not, I know that's a, that's a funny number because it's got to do with infant mortality and lots of other things, but still at that age, a lot of women did not live past, even past in, into their menopause. You know, they didn't live past 50. So we are in a different era and men, remember men have something called andropause, but they have, they make sperm. So they make sperm up to, until the, to the day they die and they even make sperm after that. They they keep, make, they're te- you know, for, for days after they're even dead, they keep making sperm. So men make sperm even into the grave, ladies. So, and that's because, and they continue to make testosterone as well. So remember, and testosterone gets converted into your brain and bones into estrogen. So that's basically men have an average age man at 60 and a woman at 60, if she's not taking HRT, he has four times as much estrogen in his body and brain as
0: she has. It's unbelievable. Isn't
1: that amazing, Cynthia? It really helps you realize why men don't get osteoporosis and why they get maybe less Alzheimer's and less dementia. I mean, the, the word it should be the word dementia. not Alzheimer's may be a very specific disease, but they get, I mean, men get other things and their testosterone causes other problems too. <laughs> Let's be clear. However, I just want to contrast it to what's going on for women's health right now.
0: Well, I think it's such an important discussion and, and one that I, I echo. I've been able to watch both personally and professionally the net impact. My mother and I talk very openly about this. My mom just had, uh, she's 76, just had a total hip replacement. She has terrible osteoporosis, terrible. Thankfully, she's had no fall. She's otherwise pretty active. Her recovery has been pretty benign. But we've had some very honest discussions about the cognitive impact on the brain of that loss of estradiol. So the predominant form of estrogen before our our bodies go into the the upgrade and, you know, conversations that I've encouraged her to have with her own physicians, because I'm starting to notice, and she is as well that there are certain things she used to be able to multitask like a King. I mean, she, she was, you know, had a very demanding job until she um, until she retired. And there are just certain things she's starting to notice that are coming harder and harder and I, I think for a lot of people listening, the bones may not seem as tangible right now. The muscle mass loss may not be as tangible right now. Um, they may not even be thinking about heart disease. But when you start talking about cognitive decline, you start talking about that loss of insulin signaling and, and the loss of estradiol, and and you just really think about the net impact. Why are women at greater risk of going or developing dementia later in life? And for me, it it really comes down to the thing that I think about the most is that loss of cognition, because that impacts not just the individual, but their loved ones, their family members, et cetera. And so I'm so glad that you touched on so many of these things. And for anyone that's listening, there's also important distinctions. You know, when we're looking at the WHI, they were using synthetic pregnant mare's urine and progestins versus some of these bioidentical hormones that are now being used. And, and I think they also get a bad rap because- there's a lot of pseudoscience that goes along with that and pill mills and hormone pellets, and we don't even have to go down that, that rabbit hole. But I'm curious, you know, when you are working with your patients, are you differentiating between different types of hormonal replacement therapies? Meaning, are you using synthetics or bioidenticals? Is that, is that important to you? The, the reason why I'm asking is a lot of the questions that I got preceding our discussion were specific to that. They were curious to know what your thoughts on, are on that as well.
1: I just want to clear up all of our thinking and terminology because it's really important because that word, the word bioidentical hormone is basically, it basically means this is something is chemically identical to what like your ovary makes, for example, or, you know, chemically identical to what your adrenal glands make, just identical to the human form. And so estradiol, for example, is the name of the most prevalent estrogen that females make during your fertile years. And um, basically that's what's in many many of the pills and many of the patches right now are just basically estradiol. And so I, I prefer to use those but i think that this issue of natural hormones and i bioidentical versus it's it's become something it's become a little moot in that many of the many of the prescribed hormones are all bioidentical natural that you could use those words for them and so it's only a marketing ploy right now pharmaceutical industry in the united states is probably the biggest marketing industry that we have. So beware of what they tell you. I mean, just like, you know, do your own research. And no, it's not that if there's something that's a prescription that's made by your pharmacy or made by a pharmaceutical com- company, that it's not bioidentical. They won't put bioidentical on the label just because it's, it's nonsensical to them because they put estradiol on the label because estradiol is the bioidentical hormone, you know. So it's just that one step. So, and it is the natural hormone. So, I think that the idea of getting uh, really expensive, custom made, quote, bioidentical hormones, although I do talk a lot about that in the book, just in terms of, you know, how you can think through this and how you can think through what you're getting uh, specifically. And for some women, that is helpful if they're not responding well to the regular sort of prescribed dosages of the prescribed forms of those. And just by the way, you know, Dr. Brendan has, you know, she basically has shown that the pregnant mare's urine, which is a natural, think about it, that's a natural hormone. It comes from pregnant mares. My God, it's not made in the lab. It's a pregnant mare hormone, that, which call, was called Premarin. It actually has more stimulatory function on brain function the natural hormones from humans, you know? So, you know, so if you're someone who's got some cognition problems, you might do better on pregnant marriage. You know, don't hit it with a complete blanket, like bioidentical is good and anything else is bad. Just try to have a bit of an open mind. I mean, know your stuff, but have an open mind because I believe that each of you is an individual and what's going to be right for you is going to be something that's you get to test drive. I like to give women stuff for their toolbox. I think of like all the, the hormones I can give, the, the things I can prescribe, the antidepressants I can prescribe, whatever it is I can prescribe. I want to give them those in their toolbox to try for themselves to see how that works for them. You know, I, I think that the, that's really important. Don't you think, Cynthia, from your work with patients is that I think that help, that we, we people in the healthcare profession, we need to help our patients be able to realize that they are so individual and unique that my role is to partner with them and to help them be able to get tools that I can give them because I can write prescriptions to use in their toolbox to work things out to the best of their health cognition and well-being and sleep let's not forget sleep
0: <laughs> no it's so important and, and how grateful I am that you are doing work in this space because the concept of bioindividuality is something that I honor and Even when I was working in cardiology, I definitely honored because I would have clinicians that would work with me that would say everyone with high blood pressure gets this drug at this dose. And I used to say, that's not how it works. Like I've learned certain demographics and sizes of patients need different dosings. And so I learned very early on that if I wanted to uh, decrease the likelihood of people having side effects, I would start low and slow. And you could always go up if need be. I love that you mentioned the distinction between synthetic and bio bioidentical hormones. And The reason why I I share this now is that for a long time, I used to feel like thyroid medicine, you'd had to have nature thyroid or armor thyroid. They were so superior. Well, the laugh is on me because when nature thyroid disappeared off the market two years ago, I went on this whole journey of experiencing compounded versus synthetic varieties. And what am I taking right now? Synthetic T4 and synthetic T3. And it actually works really well for me. So I want to be really clear that you can still have synthetic hormones That work well for your body and that we don't want to pass judgment across all of synthetic options because for some people, that might be the only thing that works well for them. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order
1: absolutely i'm glad that you brought that up because it's really important and you know i think that you and i'm thinking about you too because it is so funny that we had we had this thing this discussion a few minutes ago about the male female that you know kind of the alpha male like physician you know where and you and i were probably always we were being more subtle starting on lower doses and i was always the low dose queen because probably because of my own experiences that you know, we were taught in medicine that only petite Asian women were the ones who needed to have lower doses, right? Of anything. But you know, that's not true. I'm not a petite Asian woman and I have to have the tiniest doses of things. I can react really badly to even to like the lowest dose of a normal thing. So I'm always, I have to cut pills in halves and even quarters to give them a try for myself. And a long time ago, I started using things for women who have the anxiety, the depression, I remember I still ran into one of my my friends and former patients who, um, when she was going through the perimenopause, and menopause, I tried her on the uh, the formula I always used to use was just because Prozac was the only thing that came in liquid form in those days. All of them now, I think, come in liquid form. But uh, So she used to take, she said she used to take like three drops out of the dropper, the liquid dropper of Prozac in the morning when she was going through the perimenopause. Where she says it completely saved her life. And so that was about, she was taking about the equivalent of one or two milligrams, you know, and the standard dose is 10, 20, 30, you know, so she was taking maybe one-tenth or one-half or, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny dose of the normal. So I find that because I wasn't really treating full-blown clinical depression with with my women patients in the clinic that were going through perimenopause and through the, you know, the transition years, I was treating things that were kind of changes in hormone-related that was taking wallop on their mood and their anxiety and their sense of well-being. I mean, I, I remember the one woman, she said it the best that came into my clinic saying like Dr. Prisoner, she's like, she's like this beautiful woman has this like, you know, gorgeous kids. And she's like in a, in a great job. I mean, she's really, she said, I have everything. I have the best husband. I have the best life. I've got everything. She says, but you know, if it weren't for them, I would not want to go on living. Mm-hmm. I feel that bad inside. And so I often get, the women in my clinic that to everybody else, they look like they're just fine and they're faking it. They're faking it really well to the point other people don't know they're faking it really well, but inside they are miserable. And to have her say to me, you know, I really don't, I don't feel like I would go on living if it weren't for my husband and kids, because I feel that badly inside my mood. My, I feel, I feel like I would, I would just like to, if I could, I would just like to kill myself. So that's how bad it gets in perimenopause for for a certain set of women. And um, I just want to put words to that because if you, somebody listening, are one of those women and everybody thinks you're just fine, but you know you're not fine, I want you to get to a doctor that will help you with that. And, you know, getting your hormones, getting, getting your estrogen given back to you is one of the cornerstones of it. Getting your sleep in order is one of the, getting your exercise and diet is one of the things, but also you're, you are allowed ladies to have some of these other things to help you through this period too, which could be like either, I like, I like to use liquid Prozac because it has fewer side effects and it doesn't make you gain as much weight as some of the other antidepressants do. But you could also have, you know, um, you could also have the Zoloft, Paxil, Selexa, Lexapro, any any of those that work for you, and usually small doses that are not used, you know, at the same level for someone who has a full-blown clinical depression in the hospital. So I just want to put a pitch out that. I don't know, Cynthia, if you found that was true in people that you've heard talk about this.
0: Yeah, well, I think it goes without saying that there's this assumption that if everything looks good on the outside then everything is fine on the inside and I'll be the first person to say that those transitional years really can throw you for a loop and I, I think it's so important to mention that the microdosing so you know subtherapeutic levels to traditional antidepressant and anti-anxiety therapies is really very helpful because in cardiology we generally gave those traditional doses, and I would I, I knew if I gave a certain amount to my thin little old lady who was depressed and needed to put on some weight, I knew exactly what dose to you know, use of Zoloft. But I think it's it's important to understand that you know you are very thoughtfully tinkering these doses, you know specifically for these transitional years, women may have episodes with these fluctuating amounts of. Estradiol and progesterone and testosterone that can impact mood so significantly. Are you using other antidepressants um, other than the SSRIs or is that your predominant area of focus right now?
1: Oh, I'll even use the old tricyclics like, you know, like, you know, nortriptyline or, you know, amitriptyline or elevil or, you know, sometimes in small doses at bedtime if someone's having a lot of trouble sleeping. I try generally to stay away from the, the, the ambience, the uh, Xanaxes and the, you know, the benzodiazepine category. Um, because, unfortunately, um, it has blowback. I mean, you know, when women travel a lot, and you're changing trans- time zones and stuff. You may be able to take, you can take two nights in a row of a benzodiazepine or an Ambien or something like that. And then you get blowback on the third night. Everybody that does it, you get blowback on the third night where you can't fall, to save your life, you can't fall asleep and stuff. And then, unfortunately, you get into this horrible rhythm. And those medicines will cause depression as as something that will start to creep up on you if you continuously take them and cause also cognitive impairment. So um, I, I don't say, no, I never say never t- about any drug. I, I, and, you know, the, the antidepressant called Remeron, which is a, it's a penis, it's, it's generic. I like to use that for women who are really having a problem keeping on any weight and have a lot of trouble with sleep. And, you know, that the, I take the, the like the 7.5 to the smallest they come in. Sometimes I cut, let people cut that in half to start with, or even half of that. Because that's a really great sleeping med, and that's that's not a that's not a, an SSRI. And you know, some people the Effexor was the one that you know the Venlafaxine was one that was used a lot, or the Paroxetine is is that one that was actually rebranded by the pharmaceutical industry for specifically for women in the perimenopause and. The only problem with that one is I, I I I tend not to use that one anymore because it, it causes so much weight gain. Um, and of course, Remeron will, uh, the mirtazapine will also cause weight gain. So you have to, you know, each individual woman, you know, we had to, we had to kind of fine tune this for each of them is, is the bottom line. So, um, I mean, you may have some other favorite ones like, you know, there's all the SNRIs, the, you know, SSRI. There's lots of categories now of antidepressants and new ones coming on the market at all times. And, some women that have a lot of trouble with their mood, and they have a little bit of bipolar history in their family or something, or a little bit of bipolar themselves. They can, they do well little times on lamotrigine a little bit of lamictal. So there's, you know, we can kind of figure out ways in which to have things. I, I call it tailor a tailor made, you know, pharmaceutical um, mix for people um, that will help you get through this. That you know, that we know that if you've had a depression or anxiety before you hit these perimenopause transition years of 40 to like 52 or three, you are more likely by maybe two, three, or four times more likely to have mood, anxiety, depressed, and a lot of difficulties, brain fog with this transition period. And I don't want you to suffer in silence. I mean, what is this? Pull up your socks. like It's not just you. It's your family. It's the people that love you. It's like, you know, there's many layers of reasons to cry to uh, most, most of all is that the world needs you. I mean, all the people you interact with, we, we need you to be your best. You need you to be your best. You may not even realize that you need you to be your best until you then are getting back to your best. But so I don't like women to suffer. I, the suffering silence business is like, that's old fashioned. Let's, let's get rid of that. That's, and this, this doctors, doctors that believe in this WHI study of 2002, 20 years ago, and just still live by it. Um, they are doing women women a great disservice. And they don't do it on purpose. It's not intentional. They don't even know. They have lack of knowledge. So you all you all have more knowledge than they do about this oft- oftentimes.
0: Well, and I think one of the things that I learned as an undergrad was that we are designed to evolve, shift, and change throughout our lifetime. A lot of the rhetoric that I shared with patients as a new nurse practitioner is largely just proven. And I'm thinking about a lot of the nutritional recommendations we used to provide to patients. But I think if you're a clinician or you are treating women of middle age and you aren't looking more closely at how that study has has impacted women on such a profound and significant level, as well as clinicians, and you're not open-minded enough to pivot, change your mind, say, this is what I did before, this is now, Um, you're really doing a tremendous disservice to women. And and it's interesting. It wasn't until I myself hit the wall of perimenopause that I really started to understand that no one prepared me for this time period in my life, not my mom, because that generation didn't talk about it, not my grandmother, not my schooling, not my girlfriends, because no one wanted to talk about it. There's a degree of shame about aging that really doesn't need to be there. I I think on so many levels, at least it's been my experience as a 51-year-old woman that this has been the most gratifying time in my life. Like all of a sudden shedding these, you know, the should twos and the would have, should have, could haves I mean, all of those are gone. And I really do endeavor to make sure that other women understand that this should be a really freeing time in our lives. I'm curious, are you working on any new projects? Do you think you have another book in you? We were talking about that before we started recording um, because these books are such a labor of love and, and your book is obviously one of my favorites that I've I've read Specific to women in middle age, um, and again, the terminology is so important. What are you working on right now? Well, mostly I'm
1: working on the different like aspects of the book. This book that just came out. If you read the female brain, which was my was was one of the former books. If you read the set, chapter seven called the mature female brain in that book, that's kind of like a short chapter, basically about this. Whole books uh, aspects, but also in this book, if you're like, if you're already past the stage of the the perimenopause menopause stage, and you're already into the upgrade, then you know you can just change. You can just turn directly to ch- chapters five, six, and seven in this new book, the upgrade, and and then even in the later chapters, I talk in chapter fourteen about dementia and basically a lot of things about you things you can do for your cognitive health but also a lot about about you know and even in the last part i kind of talk about like you know this stage of like age 70 80 90 when you're kind of thinking about more end-of-life things so this this book basically we decided my editors and i decided not to put ages attached to the chapters because it's such a fluid time for all of us women we're at different stages at different ages but, you know, I think in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you start to go through a different time when you start to, you're looking at your adult children. And so there's a chapter eight, which is how basically how you think about, you know, being a mother to adult children, which is a whole other chapter. So I'm working a lot with, with other women that are trying to figure out how to be a mother and mother their adult children, you know, who basically want you not to... Manage, manipulate, or mother them. Forget it. They won't even talk to you or return your texts or your phone calls. Forget it. So don't do that, ladies. You know. And also the phrase "my help is not helpful." That's stressful. When they when they're in their thirties, my son just turned thirty three last week. And it's like when they when they hit this stage, like uh, they they want they want very little advice. You know. And so it's a, it's a whole nother. So if you're in that transition, ladies, you can just ch- ch- turn, turn to chapter seven, eight and nine, you know, and it's it goes on from there. And if you're in your 80s or 90s, you can chapters 15 and 16 may be more for you. So it basically so I'm, I'm kind of working on that whole transition into, you know, I didn't feel like I could write this book until I had some legitimacy and experience myself. Coming, you know, I didn't think I would because I felt like I had done the whole thing with the female brain. I went from the moment of conception till like the the immature female brain. But that book came out when I was like fifty three or fifty four. You know, that came out and went. So I felt this one. I really needed to. I didn't know I was going to write this one until I had this whole new experience after that. I so, said, "Wow, there's so much left. there's so much more." And the feeling of authenticity and the feeling of going. Forward to the things that are really, really deeply important to you in your life, like like your relationship with your loved ones, your relationships with your families, your relationship with your siblings, the relationships with your you know your friends and yourself. So there's there's all of these things that you basically can spend more time on to become more and more important to you as another part of your life where your, you know, your fertility life and the early part of your career is past and you are wanting to give something back to the younger generation. There's all of those aspects that will become more important to you as you hit your, you know, your late fifties and your sixties and into your seventies. So, um, I'm just trying to give back. I'm just really focusing on giving back right now, Cynthia.
0: Well, I'm so very grateful. It's a book that is a very important one and and one that I've started gifting to my family members uh, that need this message, as well as patients and clients. Let my listeners know how to connect with you. Obviously, we'll have links to all of your social media and your books, but let them know the easiest way to connect with you outside of this podcast.
1: Yeah, and they can just go to my website, which is uh, luanbrisandine.com. And they can. I've got all the kinds of information there, and information on how to get in touch with me, and all that kind of stuff, and. Uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on months. So I do. I've, you know, I think social is social, as you probably know, is a mixed bag because it's not great self-care to spend too much time on social. I have a lot of stuff on social on, on Instagram uh, on TikTok. TikTok, I gave this little, like, like the the tip, you know, the muscle tip that, that, you know, cause your muscles communicate with your brain. So I have a lot of stuff in the book about, about, about diet, nutrition and, and muscles, but muscles are really important because the study of 80 year olds who spent, had the best cognition were also those who had the best leg strength. So I, I did a little TikTok thing on like how squeezing your, your butt, your butt is one of the biggest muscles. So ladies, butt squeezes, butt squeezes are really, you know, an important thing. And that t- that TikTok video was like very, very popular one. So I,
0: I love that. Those. I love but that you're on TikTok. That. On
1: Instagram or the, you know, the old Facebook page. I still have one of those. So I have a lot of stuff on my Facebook page. So they can, they can go to social if they want to see some more things. But mostly I would say, if you've got the female rainbow book and then the upgrade book and you have those together, I think that you can just marinate yourself in those and you, you can get, well, you can get all the wisdom I have to give you.
0: <laughs> well, it's wonderful. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. I'm so very grateful that we were able to connect on a weekend to record this.
1: Absolutely, Cynthia. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of your audience for listening. I'm just hopeful that they will all upgrade themselves to a point where they just fall in love again with
0: themselves and their own life. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.